0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Chapters 22 through 25. Chapter 22: Merry Christmas. At length, towards noon, upon the final dismissal of the ship's riggers, and after the Pequod had been hauled out from the wharf, and after the ever-thoughtful Charity had come off in a whale-boat, with her last gift—a nightcap for Stubb, the second mate, her brother-in-law, and a spare Bible for the steward—after all this, the two captains, Peleg and Bildad, issued from the cabin, and turning to the chief mate, Peleg said— now mr starbuck are you sure everything is all right captain ahab is all ready just spoke to him nothing more to be got from shore eh well call all hands then muster em aft here blast em. no need of profane words however great the hurry peleg said bildad but away with thee friend starbuck and do our bidding how now here upon the very point of starting for the voyage Captain Peleg and Captain Bildad were going it with a high hand on the quarter-deck, just as if they were to be joint commanders at sea, as well as to all appearances in port. And as for Captain Ahab, no sign of him was yet to be seen, only, they said, he was in the cabin. But then the idea was that his presence was by no means necessary in getting the ship under way, and steering her well out to sea indeed as that was not at all his proper business but the pilot's and as he was not yet completely recovered so they said therefore captain ahab stayed below and all this seemed natural enough especially as in the merchant service many captains never show themselves on deck for a considerable time after heaving up the anchor but remain over the cabin table having a farewell merry-making with their shore friends before they quit the ship for good with the pilot but there was not much chance to think over the matter for captain peleg was now all alive he seemed to do most of the talking and commanding and not bildad aft here ye sons of bachelors he cried as the sailors lingered at the mainmast. mr starbuck drive em aft strike the tent there was the next order as I hinted before, this whalebone marquee was never pitched except in port, and on board the Pequod for thirty years the order to strike the tent was well known to be the next thing to heaving up the anchor. Man the capstan! Blood and thunder! Jump! was the next command, and the crew sprang for the handspikes. Now, in getting under way, the station generally occupied by the pilot is the forward part of the ship. And here Bildad, who, with Peleg be it known, in addition to his other officers, was one of the licensed pilots of the port, he being suspected to have got himself made a pilot in order to save the Nantucket pilot-fee to all the ships he was concerned in, for he never piloted any other craft, Bildad, I say, might now be seen actively engaged in looking over the bows for the approaching anchor and at intervals singing what seemed a dismal stave of psalmody to cheer the hands at the windlass, who roared forth some sort of chorus about the girls in Booble Alley, with a hearty good will. Nevertheless, not three days previous, Bildad had told them that no profane songs would be allowed on board the Pequod, particularly in getting under way, and Charity, his sister, had placed a small, choiced copy of Watts in each seaman's berth. Meantime, overseeing the other part of the ship, Captain Peleg ripped and swore astern in the most frightful manner. I almost thought he would sink the ship before the anchor could be got up. Involuntarily I paused on my handspike and told Queequeg to do the same, thinking of the perils we both ran in starting on the voyage with such a devil for a pilot. I was comforting myself, however, with the thought that in pious Bildad might be found some salvation, spite of his seven hundred seventy-seventh lay, when I felt a sudden sharp poke in my rear, and, turning round, was horrified at the apparition of Captain Peleg in the act of withdrawing his leg from my immediate vicinity. That was my first kick." is that the way they heave in the merchant service he roared spring thou sheephead spring and break thy backbone why don't you spring i say all of you spring quahog spring thou chap with the red whiskers spring there scotch cap spring thou green pants spring i say all of you and spring your eyes out and so saying he moved along the windlass here and there using his leg very freely while imperturbable Bildad kept leading off with his psalmody. Thinks I, Captain Peleg, must have been drinking something to-day. At last the anchor was up, the sails were set, and off we glided. It was a short, cold Christmas, and as the short northern day merged into night, we found ourselves almost broad upon the wintry ocean, whose freezing spray cased us in ice as in polished armor, The long rows of teeth on the bulwarks glistened in the moonlight, and like the white ivory tusks of some huge elephant, vast curving icicles depended from the bows. Lank Bildad, as pilot, headed the first watch, and ever and anon, as the old craft deep-dived into the green seas, and sent the shivering frost all over her, and the winds howled and the cordage rang, his steady notes were heard sweet fields beyond the swelling flood stand dressed in living green so to the jews old canaan stood while jordan rolled between never did those sweet words sound more sweetly to me than then they were full of hope and fruition spite of this frigid winter night in the boisterous atlantic spite of my wet feet and wetter jacket there was yet it then seemed to me many a pleasant haven in store and meads and glades so eternally vernal that the grass shot up by the spring, untrodden, unwilted, remains at midsummer. At last we gained such an offing that the two pilots were needed no longer. The stout sailboat that had accompanied us began ranging alongside. It was curious and not unpleasing how Peleg and Bildad were affected at this juncture, especially Captain Bildad for loath to depart yet very loath to leave for good a ship bound on so long and perilous a voyage beyond both stormy capes a ship in which some thousands of his hard-earned dollars were invested a ship in which an old shipmate sailed as captain a man almost as old as he once more starting to encounter all the terrors of the pitiless jaw loath to say good-bye to a thing so every way brimful of every interest to him Poor old Bildad lingered long, paced the deck with anxious strides, ran down into the cabin to speak another farewell word there, again came on deck, and looked to windward, looked towards the wide and endless waters, only bounded by the far-off, unseen eastern continents, looked toward the land, looked aloft, looked right and left, looked everywhere and nowhere, and at last, mechanically coiling a rope upon its pin, convulsively grasped, stout Peleg by the hand, and holding up a lantern for the moment stood gazing heroically in his face, as much to say, Nevertheless, friend Peleg, I can stand it. Yes, I can. As for Peleg himself, he took it more like a philosopher. But for all his philosophy there was a tear twinkling in his eye when the lantern came too near. And he, too, did not a little run from cabin to deck. Now a word below, now a word with Starbuck, the chief mate. But at last he turned to his comrade, with a final sort of look about him. "'Captain Bildad! Come, old shipmate, we must go. Back the main-yard there! Boat ahoy! Stand by to come close alongside now! Careful, careful! Come, Bildad boy, say your last. Luck to you, Starbuck! Luck to you, Mr. Stubb! Luck to you, Mr. Flask!' Good-bye and good luck to ye all. And this day three years I'll have a hot supper smokin' for ye in old Nantucket. Hurrah and away! God bless ye and have ye in his holy keeping, men, murmured old Bildad almost incoherently. I hope you'll have fine weather now, so that Captain Ahab may soon be moving among ye. A pleasant sun is all he needs, and you'll have plenty of them in the tropic voyage you go. BE CAREFUL IN THE HUNT, YOU MATES. DON'T STAVE THE BOATS NEEDLESSLY, YOU HARPENEERS. GOOD WHITE CEDAR PLANK IS RAISED FULL THREE PERCENT WITHIN THE YEAR. DON'T FORGET YOUR PRAYERS EITHER. MR. STARBUCK, MIND THAT COOPER DON'T WASTE THE SPARE STAVES. OH, THE SAIL-NEEDLES ARE IN THE GREEN LOCKER. DON'T WAIL IT TOO MUCH ON THE LORD'S DAYS, MEN. BUT DON'T MISS A FAIR CHANCE EITHER, THAT'S REJECTING HEAVEN'S GOOD GIFTS. Have an eye to the molasses, Tears, Mr. Stubb. It was a little leaky, I thought. If ye touch at the islands, Mr. Flask, beware of fornication. Good-bye, good-bye. Don't keep that cheese too long down in the hold, Mr. Starbuck, it'll spoil. Be careful with the butter. Twenty cents the pound it was, and mind ye if Come, come, Captain Bildad, stop palavering! Away! And with that Peleg hurried him over the side, and both dropped into the boat. Ship and boat diverged, the cold, damp night breeze blew between, a screaming gull flew overhead, the two hulls wildly rolled, we gave three heavy hearted cheers, and blindly plunged, like fate, into the lone Atlantic. Chapter 23 The Lee Shore some chapters back one bulkington was spoken of a tall new-landed mariner encountered in new bedford at the inn when on that shivering winter's night the pequod thrust her vindictive bows into the cold malicious waves who should i see standing at her helm but bulkington i looked with sympathetic awe and fearfulness upon the man who in midwinter just landed from a four years dangerous voyage could so unrestingly push off again for still another tempestuous term. The land seemed scorching to his feet. Wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable. Deep memories yield no epitaphs. This six-inch chapter is the stoneless grave of Bulkington. Let me only say that it fared with him as with the storm-tossed ship that miserably drives along the lured land— the port would fain give succour. The port is pitiful, in the port is safety, comfort, hearthstone, supper, warm blankets, friends, all that's kind to our mortalities. But in that gale, the port, the land, is that ship's direst jeopardy. She must fly all hospitality. One touch of land, though it but graze the keel, would make her shudder through and through. With all her might she crowds all sail offshore. in so doing, fights against the very winds that fain would blow her homeward, seeks all the lashed sea's landlessness again, for refuge's sake forlornly rushing into peril, her only friend, her bitterest foe. Know ye now, Bulkington? Glimpses do you seem to see of that mortally intolerable truth, that all deep, earnest thinking is but the intrepid effort of the soul to keep the open independence of her sea, while the wildest winds of heaven and earth conspire to cast her on the treacherous, slavish shore. But as in landlessness alone resides highest truth, shoreless, indefinite as God, so better it is to perish in that howling infinite than be ingloriously dashed upon the lee, even if that were safety. For worm like then, oh, who would craven crawl to land? Terrors of the terrible! Is all this agony so vain? Take heart, take heart, O oh Bulkington! Bear thee grimly, demigod! Up from the spray of thy ocean perishing, straight up leaps thy apotheosis. Chapter 24 The Advocate as queequeg and i are now fairly embarked in this business of whaling and as this business of whaling has somehow come to be regarded among landsmen as a rather unpoetical and disreputable pursuit therefore i am all anxiety to convince you ye landsmen of the injustice hereby done to us hunters of whales in the first place it may be deemed almost superfluous to establish the fact that among people at large the business of whaling is not accounted on a level with what are called the liberal professions if a stranger were introduced into any miscellaneous metropolitan society it would but slightly advance the general opinion of his merits were he presented to the company as a harpooner say and if, in emulation of the naval officers, he should append the initials SWF, Sperm Whale Fishery, to his visiting card, such a procedure would be deemed preeminently presuming and ridiculous. Doubtless one leading reason why the world declines honouring us whalemen is this. They think that at best our vocation amounts to a butchering sort of business, and that when actively engaged therein we are surrounded by all manner of defilements butchers we are that is true but butchers also and butchers of the bloodiest badge have been all the martial commanders whom the world invariably delights to honour and as for the matter of the alleged uncleanliness of our business you shall soon be initiated into certain facts hitherto pretty generally unknown and which upon the whole will triumphantly plant the sperm whale ship at least among the cleanliest things of this tidy earth but even granting the charge in question to be true, what disordered, slippery decks of a whale ship are comparable to the unspeakable carrion of those battlefields from which so many soldiers return to drink in all ladies' plaudits? And if the idea of peril so much enhances the popular conceit of the soldier's profession, Let me assure you that many a veteran who has freely marched up to a battery would quickly recoil at the apparition of the sperm-whale's vast tail, fanning into eddies the air over his head. For what are the comprehensible terrors of man compared with the interlinked terrors and wonders of God? But, though the world scouts at us whale-hunters, yet does it unwittingly pay us the profoundest homage, yea, an all-abounding adoration for almost all the tapers, lamps, and candles that burn round the globe burn as before so many shrines to our glory. But look at this matter in other lights, weigh it in all sorts of scales, see what we whalemen are and have been. Why did the Dutch in de Witt's time have admirals of their whaling-fleets? Why did Louis Sixteenth of France, at his own personal expense, fit out whaling-ships from Dunkirk, and politely invite to that town some score or two of families from our own island of Nantucket? Why did Britain, between the years 1750 and 1788, pay her whalemen in bounties of upwards of one million pounds? And lastly, how comes it that we whalemen of America now outnumber all the rest of the banded whalemen in the world?' Sail a navy of upwards of seven hundred vessels, manned by eighteen thousand men, yearly consuming four million of dollars, the ship's worth at the time of sailing twenty million dollars, and every year importing into our harbours a well-reaped harvest of seven million dollars. How comes all this if there be not something puissant in whaling? But this is not the half. Look again! I freely assert that the cosmopolite philosopher cannot, for his life, point out one single peaceful influence which, within the last sixty years, has operated more potentially upon the whole broad world, taken in one aggregate, than the high and mighty business of whaling. One way and another, it has begotten events so remarkable in themselves, and so continuously momentous in their sequential issues, that whaling may well be regarded as that Egyptian mother who bore offspring themselves pregnant from her womb. It would be a hopeless, endless task to catalogue all these things. Let a handful suffice. For many years past the whale-ship has been the pioneer in ferreting out the remotest and least known parts of the earth. She has explored seas and archipelagos which had no chart, where no cook or Vancouver had ever sailed, if american and european men of war now peacefully ride in once savage harbors let them fire salutes to the honor and glory of the whale-ship which originally showed them the way and first interpreted between them and the savages they may celebrate as they will the heroes of exploring expeditions your cooks your but i say that scores of anonymous captains have sailed out of nantucket that were as great and greater than your cook and your for in their succorless empty-handedness they in the heathenish sharked waters and by the beaches of unrecorded javelin islands battled with virgin wonders and terrors that cook with all his marines and muskets would not willingly have dared All that is made such a flourish of in old South Sea voyages, those things were but the lifetime commonplaces of our heroic Nantucketers. Often adventures which Vancouver dedicates three chapters to, these men accounted unworthy of being set down in the ship's common log. Ah, the world! Ah, the world! Until the whale-fishery rounded Cape Horn, no commerce but colonial, Scarcely any intercourse but colonial was carried on between Europe and the long line of the opulent Spanish provinces on the Pacific coast. It was the whalemen who first broke through the jealous policy of the Spanish crown touching those colonies, and, if space permitted, it might be distinctly shown how, from those whalemen, at last eventuated the liberation of Peru, Chile, and Bolivia from the yoke of old Spain, and the establishment of eternal democracy in those parts. That great America on the other side of the sphere, Australia, was given to the enlightened world by the whaleman. After its first blunderborn discovery by a Dutchman, all other ships long shunned those shores as pestiferously barbarous. But the whale ship touched there. The whale ship is the true mother of that now mighty colony moreover in the infancy of the first australian settlement the emigrants were several times saved from starvation by the benevolent biscuit of the whale-ship luckily dropping an anchor in their waters the uncounted isles of all polynesia confess the same truth and do commercial homage to the whale-ship that cleared the way for the missionary and the merchant and in many cases carried the primitive missionaries to their first destinations If that double-bolted land, Japan, is ever to become hospitable, it is the whale-ship alone to whom the credit will be due, for already she is on the threshold. But if, in the face of all this, you still declare that whaling has no aesthetically noble associations connected with it, then I am ready to shiver fifty lances with you there, and unhorse you with a split helmet every time. The whale has no famous author and wailing no famous chronicler, you will say. The whale no famous author, and wailing no famous chronicler! Who wrote the first account of our Leviathan? Who but mighty Job? And who composed the first narrative of a whaling voyage? Who but no less a prince than Alfred the Great, who with his own royal pen took down the words from author, the Norwegian whale-hunter of those times? AND WHO PRONOUNCED OUR GLOWING EULOGY IN PARLIAMENT? WHO BUT Edmund BURKE? TRUE ENOUGH, BUT THEN, WHALEMEN THEMSELVES ARE POOR DEVILS. THEY HAVE NO GOOD BLOOD IN THEIR VEINS. NO GOOD BLOOD IN THEIR VEINS? THEY HAVE SOMETHING BETTER THAN ROYAL BLOOD THERE. THE GRANDMOTHER OF BENJAMIN FRANKLIN WAS MARY Morrill. AFTERWARDS BY MARRIAGE, MARY FOLGER, ONE OF THE OLD SETTLERS OF NANTUCKET, and the ancestress to a long line of Folgers and Harpeneers, all kith and kin to the noble Benjamin, to this day darting the barbed iron from one side of the world to the other. Good again, but then all confess that somehow whaling is not respectable. Whaling not respectable! Whaling is imperial. By the old English statutory law the whale is declared a royal fish. Oh, that's only nominal. The whale himself has never figured in any grand, imposing way. The whale never figured in any grand, imposing way. In one of the mighty triumphs given to a Roman general upon his entering the world's capital, the bones of a whale, brought all the way from the Syrian coast, were the most conspicuous object in the symboled procession. Footnote. See subsequent chapters for something more on this head. End of footnote. grant it since you cite it but say what you will there is no real dignity in whaling no dignity in wailing, the dignity of our calling the very heavens attest cetus is a constellation in the south no more drive down your hat in the presence of the czar and take it off to queequeg no more i know a man that in his lifetime has taken three hundred and fifty whales I account that man more honourable than that great captain of antiquity who boasted of taking as many walled towns. And as for me, if by any possibility there be any as yet undiscovered prime thing in me, if I shall ever deserve any real repute in that small but high hushed world which I might not be unreasonably ambitious of, if hereafter I shall do anything that upon the whole... A man might rather have done than to have left undone. If, at my death, my executors, or, more properly, my creditors, find any precious manuscripts in my desk, then here I prospectively ascribe all the honour and the glory to whaling, for a whale-ship was my Yale College and my Harvard. CHAPTER Twenty Five, POSTSCRIPT. In behalf of the dignity of wailing, I would fain advance naught but substantiated facts, but after embattling his facts, an advocate who should wholly suppress a not unreasonable surmise, which might tell eloquently upon his case, such an advocate would he not be blameworthy. It is well known that at the coronation of kings and queens, even modern ones, a certain curious process of seasoning them for their functions is gone through. There is a salt cellar of state, so called, and there may be a caster of state. How they use the salt, precisely, who knows? Certain I am, however, that a king's head is solemnly oiled at his coronation, even as a head of salad. Can it be, though, that they anoint it with a view of making his interior run well as they anoint machinery? much might be ruminated here, concerning the essential dignity of this regal process, because in common life we esteem but meanly and contemptibly a fellow who anoints his hair, and palpably smells of that anointing. In truth, a mature man who uses hair-oil, unless medicinally that man has probably got a quaggy spot in him somewhere, as a general rule he can't amount to much in his totality. But the only thing to be considered here is this—what kind of oil is used at coronation? Certainly it cannot be olive oil, or macassar oil, nor castor oil, nor bear's oil, nor train oil, nor cod-liver oil. What then can it possibly be but sperm oil, in its unmanufactured, unpolluted state, the sweetest of all oils? Think of that, ye loyal Britons! We whalemen supply your kings and queens with coronation stuff. End of chapters twenty two to twenty five. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get sixteen ounce packs of flavorful Angus ninety percent lean ground sirloin for four ninety nine each with a digital coupon. Then buy two get two free on twelve packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or Seven Up. All with your card.